John 6.35. You can't see the thing. <clears throat> then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. So when God wanted for the very first time in history to reveal himself not only to a select person, but to the masses, he gave them what? Bread. Manna in the wilderness every single day so that they would know what he's like. And when God wanted everyone to remember the big story that he was authoring all across generations, he gave them bread, a meal, Passover, to remember him. And when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, the original deceiver tempted him with bread. Turn these stones into bread. And then later when Jesus wanted everyone to understand what they were about to witness in his crucifixion, again, it was bread, an ordinary loaf that he stood and very dramatically tore uh, in front of his disciples representing his body. And then all the way at the end, in the book of Revelation, a picture is painted of heaven and earth being reunited as one, uh, of an eternity of love and peace with this pursuing God. And it is going to be like bread, like a wedding feast that never ends. Bread is the imagery that Jesus chose to disorient the believing to the point that most of them walked away from him. And bread is the imagery Jesus chose to invite those who were thought to be outside of the bounds of his promises. So if you're going to understand the story of scripture, and if you're going to understand the life of Jesus and all that he was dragging in to this miraculous lunch of loaves and fish, you're going to have to understand what bread means in the story that Jesus is telling. So knowing God, that's the name of the teaching series that's gonna carry us all the way into the season of Lent. By the way, Happy New Year. It is fantastic to see you. Uh, I'm really, really excited about what we have going on uh, this year. The Holy Spirit Conference is this month. Just occurred to me this morning, I'm, I'm so anticipating it. Remember last year? And then we're going to do our second run of 24-7 prayer. We're going to start a prayer room again. The 40 days of Lent are going to be 40 days of unceasing prayer leading up to a big party on Easter Sunday. It's going to be good. Uh, but the way that we set proper context for all of that is to direct uh, our attention off of ourselves and on to God, knowing God, becoming aware of who he is, of where he is, and of what all of that means for me. So God revealed himself first in a burning bush, and Moses asked him, what is your name? And to that he responded, I am. Jesus then picked up on that theme and used it all the time. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. In fact, John's gospel is structured according to seven names and seven signs. And that structure isn't entirely original to John. Seven is the Hebrew number of completion. And in the Hebrew Bible, or what we typically call the Old Testament today, there are seven compound names for God. Yahweh, my healer. Yahweh, my helper. Yahweh, my provider. Yahweh, my banner. And so on. Names that add color to that very first I am. And the first of those seven names in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh Yireh which means the Lord will provide. 
That's how it's typically translated at least, but that's actually not the most accurate translation. The Hebrew rendering of I am is, Yah- is Yahweh, the name that God revealed himself to Moses, but this Hebrew word yireh means to see. So the most literal translation of this name is something like the Lord will see to it or Yahweh will see to it. It's a name that immediately makes me think of my middle son, Simon, who's four years old and who is the first among my children to freak out about anything and everything. Like when another kid gets dessert before him, he always assumes that that was the last cookie that there ever will be on the face of the earth and panic immediately sets in and I have to step in and say, whoa, 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 buddy, dad will see to it. Or when he's asked to do something that he doesn't know how to do, like, hey, take your shoes off when you come inside, but he's got double knotted laces, he'll just begin to cry and break down and I'll have to enter in, hey, buddy, buddy, dad will see to it. Even this morning, he wanted cereal instead of the oatmeal that had been prepared for him and so he immediately just began to like tremble and then whispered, he could barely get a word out, I wanted cereal. (laughs) And so I said, hey, bud, Dad will see to it. Now that doesn't always mean that I then give him what he wants. I didn't give him cereal, but what it means is that I entered into what seemed to be a crisis to him in this moment, became present in it with him, and made him feel safe with his oatmeal. (laughs) Now that impulse to panic, we grow more sophisticated, we become more restrained, but we never quite lose that altogether. I mean, you know what it's like to overreact? to lose sleep, to carry anxiety, to worry. Like I'm talking to you right now about your adult child that you thought you'd be done worrying about at 18, but he's 28 and the worry is more intense than it's ever been. Or about the new hire in your office who's caught the eye of management and now you're afraid of getting passed up. I'm talking to you about the investment you made that is moving in the wrong direction and now you are playing out worst case scenarios in the back of your mind nearly all the time. Or about the medical diagnosis that made your knees buckle and shattered the assumed life that you thought you had coming into pieces. The Lord will see to it. All that to say this teaching series, it is not some intellectual exploration of the person of Jesus through the poetry of John. It's got everything to do with your day job everything to do with your financial stress, everything to do with your eldest child, everything to do with your dissatisfaction in your marriage, everything to do with the actual events of your actual life here in this world. Who is God? And how can I know him? Know him not just in the sanitized place of spiritual reflection, but in the midst of my worry, in the heart of my disappointment, in the racing of my mind, in the pit of my stomach. How can I know him there? How can I know him here? Well, you start by knowing his name. And up for today is I am the bread of life. It's one name that I want to give you in four critical scenes. The sign, the encore, the bread, and the dinner. Here we go. So look back with me at John chapter six. We're gonna go a few other places in the scripture today. Everywhere else we go is gonna be on the screen, but John six, we're gonna read together from the page. So just keep a finger in John six. We're always going to be coming back to that place again and again. Scene one, the sign. So just before the headline statement that we read as our teaching text, Jesus performed arguably his most well-known miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. 
The key verse in that whole story, though, the one that would have grabbed the attention of the original Hebrew readers is the very phrase that you and I probably blaze past without even thinking. It's John chapter 6, verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, that little detail, that tells us, that's a tell for where this whole story is headed. Hang on to that. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So check this out. Jesus poses a question to one of his disciples setting up a sign. A sign is not a haphazard miracle. It's a very intentional miracle that is performed to reveal something that is true about God. A sign is a miracle that points beyond the miracle to a person. A sign is a miracle pointing to a person. Now, from this point forward, you probably already know the broad strokes of the story. Even if you've never cracked the Bible for yourself a single time, you probably know the one where Jesus took one kid's lunch and then used it to feed thousands of people. It's Jesus' only miracle that's recorded by all four gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record this event. And it's a miracle of provision. It's a Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will see to it, kind of sign. But, but because it's a sign, it means J Jesus is up to more than just really efficient catering here. He's retelling a familiar story to reveal a rumored and distant God right in the thick of the complex mess of the everyday lives of the people in the crowd. You see, back at the other end of the Bible, there's this really uh, famous story called Exodus. And in the Exodus, when Israel was in need of a rescue because they were enslaved, God showed up in the person of Moses uh, and called him, or to the person of Moses and called himself I Am. And then he revealed his person through a series of signs. There was 10 plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and then the provision of bread called manna in the wilderness. And when that invisible but powerful God hears your prayers, frees you from enslavement, marches you and your entire family from baking bricks under the boot of an oppressor to the, a promised land of freedom and prosperity, you're gonna want to remember that. So what did God give them to remember all that he, who he revealed himself to be in the Exodus? Did he give them a book or, or a song, a series of prayers, an animated Disney film? No, he gave them a meal, a Passover meal, a way by which they would remember not just the signs themselves, but the person that all these signs pointed to, the God who delivered them. Now, by the time we get to Jesus in John chapter six, Israel's boot is under the neck of a new oppressor, the Romans, and there they begin crying out to God for another liberator, for one like Moses. And the Jewish people believed that there were certain signs that would accompany uh, th this liberator as signals that their savior was arriving. One of the signs they were watching for was manna will fall from heaven again, just like in the Exodus wilderness. Just like we remember around the Passover table, we will eat bread in the wilderness. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Our story begins. I told you to hang on to that detail, remember? And then Jesus, like Moses, gives them bread in the wilderness. Jump down to verse 12 of our story. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets, 12. Not 11, 
not 13, 12 baskets. Now, this isn't about leftovers. This is a sign, remember? No detail is wasted. All of it is pointing to a person. 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone in that crowd would know exactly what Jesus is saying, knows exactly where the sign is pointing. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet, the promised savior, the one who will provide bread, bread in the wilderness, bread just like our previous liberator did. He's here, but we're just getting started. This brings us to scene two, the encore. The psychology department at Princeton University, they used to conduct this experiment on every last member of their student body, where they had every student peek through this little hole into a room. And the students had been briefed beforehand. They had been told exactly what to look for in the room, this one certain object that would be in the room's center, and then they were told to memorize details about it, like its positioning and its, and its details and what it looked like, because they'd be quizzed later on this object. And afterwards, they were quizzed on everything they saw, and almost all the students could correctly report on the details of the assigned object. But then, there was a final question on the quiz, and this was the, the whole point of the entire exercise. Did you notice anything else about the room? And almost no one did. And that was interesting because this was a crazy room. It was constructed where one wall was significantly higher than the other three. Both the floor and the ceiling were slanted at different angles. All the proportions were warped and messed up very intentionally and almost no one saw any of it. Why? Because they had been told what to look for. And sometimes when we're told what to look for, we see it, and we see it in detail, but we fail to see all that surrounds it. And all that surrounds it can profoundly speak to what it is that we're seeing. So how does this sign, the feeding of the 5,000, look if we see it in the room that it's sitting in? What if we see it in the midst of its surroundings? Well, in, in Matthew's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 is followed almost immediately by another nearly identical miracle. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus feeds the 4,000. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a repeat. It's the exact same sign done exactly the same way in a new place among new people. It's like Jesus is on tour churning out the same performance. What's going on here? Well, this is something like what scholars call a Markin sandwich, only I want to show it to you in Matthew because I think Matthew's gospel makes it a little bit more clear for this particular sign, so we will call this our Matthean sandwich. You see, the gospels, uh, they contain these literary bundles where you'll get two parallel stories and then all these details wedged into the middle, these other accounts wedged into the middle, they're meant to point to the stories that are on either side, to add color and context and fuller meaning to what we're seeing in those stories. It looks something like this. Do you see the sandwich? You got two pieces of bread, the top bread and the bottom bread with all the context wedged in the middle? That's the sandwich, and that's the room our story is sitting within. Uh, so in Matthew, it goes like this, story one, or the bread of the sandwich, pun intended, is the feeding of the 5,000. Then you've got these three accounts that are wedged in the middle, and then the bottom is story two, the bottom bread, the feeding of the 4,000. But just like you're not actually meant to take a sandwich apart and taste each ingredient separately, 
You only get the full flavor if you take a bite of the whole thing. So with, with these literary bundles, you get the full meaning, not by taking each one as a separate account, but, but only by taking a bite of the whole thing can you get the full flavor of what Jesus is serving here. Do you see what I'm saying? So let's take a closer look through each ingredient of the sandwich. Here comes the full bite. Story one, the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples collect 12 basketfuls representing the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning Jesus is the bread of life for Israel. Then in the middle, you've got these three accounts. The first one is Jesus walks on water. So immediately after feeding of the 5,000, Jesus dismisses his disciples to go to the other side, tells him he's gonna dismiss the crowds first, and then he comes walking out on water. But by the time he's there, they're in a storm. It's a really violent storm, and they are freaking out, just like my little Simon. Why? Because they saw the miracle, but they missed the sign. They did not perceive the person the sign was pointing to, Yahweh Yira. The Lord will see to it. The provider will take care of you. That sounds great, unless it's you who's powerless, helpless, and in need of a provider. See, that's when we tend to kick and scream and grasp for any ounce of control we can get our hands on. We love the idea of God as provider until I need him to be my provider. Then the second story, Jesus has a disagreement with the priests about purity. You see, the priests were convinced that spiritual purity comes down to eating and drinking. It's, it's, what you, it's eating the right things and avoiding eating the wrong things. Jesus then says something along the lines of, you have it exactly backwards. It's what comes out of a person's mouth, not what goes into it that makes them spiritually pure or impure. And then third comes the faith of the Canaanite woman. Now I wanna zoom in a little bit closer here. Jesus gets into a public disagreement about spiritual purity and then immediately has an encounter with the very person who would thought, be thought to be most spiritually impure according to the priest that he just interacted with. She's from Canaan. Canaanites were the ethnic enemy of the Jews in the first century. They are the bottom rung as far as Israel is concerned and there is a whole lot of history there. The Canaanites were the people that were occupying the promised land that the Exodus ended at. In the ancient story, they are a constant threat to the purity of Israel. And in the book of Deuteronomy, the Canaanites are referred to repeatedly as the seven nations. Hang on to that. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread, there's our bread again, and toss it to the dogs. Now, dogs were an unclean animal by the priest's purity rites that Jesus just had a disagreement about, but to call Gentiles dogs was quite common among first century Israelites. So Jesus is undeniably saying something offensive here, but he's not doing it to offend. He's doing it to heal both this woman's daughter and to teach his disciples. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, Jesus calls her faith great. Nowhere else in the whole of Matthew's gospel is anyone's faith named great. The highest praise given from God to any person during the life and ministry of Jesus was directed at arguably the most spiritually and socially marginalized person that Jesus ever interacted with. However rude you think Jesus might have been at the beginning of the story, he is unthinkably honoring as it draws to a close, revealing that the whole thing was a setup from the start and that Jesus gave her the bread. 
He gave her the bread of life. He heals her daughter. So that's the middle of the sandwich. That's all the ingredients. And here's the bottom bread, the feeding of the 4,000. It's an identical scene. Crowds are following him as he teaches the masses and heals the sick. The day is drawing to a close and they are in a remote place and there's nothing to eat. So Jesus asks his disciples if they've got anything and you'll never guess. All they've got is the equivalent to one kid's lunch. Just a few loaves and some fish. It's an identical scene, almost identical. Here's the only difference. Jesus has now crossed the lake. He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's in Gentile territory. He's in spiritually impure territory. The crowd that has gathered around him hungry this time is not Israelites. It's a Gentile crowd. He told them to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And they in turn, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied after the disciples picked up. How many takeout containers do you think they packed? Seven basketfuls of broken pieces were left over. Seven baskets like the seven nations of the Canaanites in the book of Deuteronomy. Seven baskets, as in the Hebrew number of completion, as in all people. Seven baskets, as in bread for all nations. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus was showing to them? Do you see what Jesus is showing to us? Do you see him? Do you see the person that the sign is pointing to? Twelve baskets to say, I am Yahweh Yirah, the God who will see to it, the provider for all of Israel. I'm sorry, twelve baskets. And then seven baskets to say, and I am Yahweh Yirah, the provider for all nations, for all people. I am the bread of life for anyone who is hungry. I'm the one who gives life, not just to the carriers of the promise, to the descendants of the Exodus, but to all of us, to every last one of us, to the forgotten and the marginalized and the dismissed, to the one that is told that they are spiritually unqualified or disqualified. I have set a place of honor for you at my feast table. Do you see that these two miracles, they're good on their own, but when you get a bite of this whole sandwich, how are we doing? This is a bit more dense than normal, but are you tracking with me? You following this? Good, because we're only halfway home right now. <laughs> Scene three, the bread. Now look back with me at John chapter six. I want to pick up at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So Jesus gives them bread in the wilderness. He then performs a miraculous water crossing. Who do you think that's reminding them of? Moses, right? Who provided us manna in the wilderness and raised, and raised his staff and, and the Red Seas parted? It's the Exodus. Jesus is replaying the Exodus. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now that's Jesus for you were dazzled. You tasted the bread and you even widened your eyes for a moment there in wonder, but you did not see the person that the sign pointed to. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has placed a seal of approval. 
Now jump down to verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses gave us bread, bread from heaven. And we've been waiting for a savior like Moses to free us like he freed them. Are you the one? Are you, are you who you seem to be saying you are? And Jesus responded, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you this bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, not, is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. No, 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 it wasn't Moses. It was my Father who gave you bread as a sign pointing to a person Sir, they said, give us this, or always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's saying, you're on the right track. I am the person the sign points to. I am the bread. I am your provision in the wilderness. Verse 41 at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So now they're growing skeptical. So Jesus was right. They want the miracle and they want it again and again and again. Give us this bread and keep giving it to us just like Moses seemed to keep giving it to them day after day after day. But they don't see the person that the bread is pointing to. Jump down to verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. He's saying, you'll have true life if you take my life. It's such a beautiful exchange. My righteousness for your failure, my wisdom for your folly, my love for your hate, my innocence for your guilt, my resurrection for your inevitable death. It is such a beautiful exchange. Only Jesus didn't say it like I just said it. He said, if you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, a younger me would read passages like this one and then ask, why'd you have to say it that way, Jesus? I mean, come on, man, you know that sounds like cannibalism. <laughs> Is it really necessary to lose thousands of followers over a misconception about cannibalism? But now I think I see what he's doing. He said it this way on purpose, to offend and to promise. Let's take them one at a time. First, the offense. The Israelites had all kinds of purity laws about blood. To come in contact with blood made you spiritually impure. Those laws were rooted in the Mosaic Covenant, the first bread miracle that Jesus was tugging on. That's where those laws came from. And Jesus says, drink my blood. That's how you'll get freedom today, the freedom and the life that you're looking for. And that's the only way. Remember the sandwich? Wedge right there in the very middle. Jesus' disagreement with priests, he's got a different definition of spiritual purity than they have. It's one that's going to expand the family of God. But in order for it to expand, it has to offend. 
I am the bread of life. I'm the person the sign points to. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Take my life into your life. Later, with the full context of his life, the beauty of what he's saying in this moment is going to sound forth and be so obvious. But in this moment, it's a wince and look away. I was tracking with you for a while, but I can't go there kind of offense. You know, the human body can't process raw wheat. Like if you and I were to try to live off of raw wheat, we could stand a few bites, we could eat a few heads of grain, but if we tried to satisfy our hunger on it, it would turn our stomachs and make us sick. Wheat, before it gets ground down into flour and then baked into bread, it cannot be digested. Wheat must be processed to become life-giving. In order for wheat, the raw material that becomes bread, the world's most common food source, in order for wheat to become nourishment, it has to be processed. And this word from Jesus, I am the bread of life, it has to be processed. Only later, with the context of the full life of the person that the sign points to, did this hard saying that offends turn into a breathtakingly beautiful promise. And so the principle revealed in the offense is this. Sometimes a word from God has to be processed to be revealed as good news. You cannot follow Jesus for long without having this experience. Jesus, I love your take on the poor, but do you have to be so hard on the rich? Jesus, I love your open invitation to all of the nations, but why are you so narrow and exclusive when it comes to the way to God? I mean, one side of the coin sounds broad and pluralistic, and the other side sounds narrow and restrictive. Jesus, I love the way you start the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are poetry. But then you so quickly jump to this narrow sexual ethic that for me, in my story, and in the world and culture that I'm actually living in, that bit sounds like nails on a chalkboard. You know this kind of experience? When part of Jesus' teaching doesn't square with my life experience, you know what it tastes like? Like raw wheat on my tongue. Like Jesus, so much of what you're saying is like bread that nourishes my soul, but there are a few bits a few things you have to say that just turn my stomach. You know that experience. I am the bread of life. That is good news. This is good news. A good news story with a tragic scene. The tragedy is that most of the crowd didn't stick around for processing. I mean, even Jesus' own disciples admitted that this was a hard teaching to swallow, but they stayed with the person behind the hard saying. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And I mean, for all the times Pete put his foot in his mouth in critical moments, he nailed it on this one. Jesus has not revealed a God that we can perfectly understand but he has revealed a God that we can perfectly trust. I mean, I trust the God who, even when he doesn't make the suffering goes, go away, wears the suffering alongside me. And I trust the God who, even when he sees the worst in me, never leaves me or forsakes me. And I trust the God who, even when he says something that turns my stomach, walks every step beside me for the processing. 
And I trust the God who does not condemn me for what I don't see, but shows it to me, who takes me to the Canaanite woman's house, who shows me what I thought was spiritually impure is a meeting place for God. See, trusting the person behind the hard saying means sometimes a word from God has to be processed to be revealed as good news, but every word that comes from his mouth, it's good news. It is nourishment to the soul. So many walked away, and Peter wasn't any less offended or any less confused. He felt lost and alienated like all of the rest of them, but his response was, I'm staying. I believe you are who you say you are, so I will sort out the confusion and the disorientation here with you. That is what you do when you run into a part of the Bible you don't like or want to look away from, or just totally baffled by, you stay. Staying means, instead of ignoring or avoiding the biblical passages that read to me as problematic, I will hold my real and honest questions before God in prayer and ask for help. Staying means, instead of holding the fashionably comfortable position of fence-sitting on the teachings of Jesus that aren't particularly popular at my moment in history, I'm going to do the hard work of understanding and discerning. Staying means that I'm just as honest about my doubt as my belief within my Bridgetown community. And it means that I'm not any more threatened by someone else's doubt than I am by their statements of belief in the same community. Staying means the hard work of repairing the hurts that I felt from others in the community when avoidance of them would be so much easier. Staying means forgiving and asking for forgiveness. Staying means confessing that sin pattern that's shown up again in your life this week, even though now you feel like a broken record. Staying means that resonance and resistance are both invitations to spiritual maturity. That there is some bread that tastes like bread at the very first bite, and there's other bread that's got to be processed before it can become nourishment, but it's all nourishment. And staying means that processing Jesus' teaching has always been and will always be a part of maturity. And so I engage it rather than running from it, because sometimes a word from God has to be processed to be revealed as good news. And staying does not mean that you will immediately find a satisfying answer. You might be stuck with oatmeal when you wanted cereal. <laughs> In fact, I would say you usually won't quickly find a satisfying answer. Here's what staying means. It means where you go with your questions matters. Because for most of us, when we can't square Jesus' teachings with our current life experience, we don't sit, stick around to process the way Peter did. Most of us withdraw from community and then create a pseudo-community out of our pain. We find other people that share our disillusionment, people that have, have been put off in all the same ways that we've been. Uh, we take our questions to the community, don't take our questions to those community members that have been journeying alongside us up to this point, to people that might challenge us and companion with us and, and process alongside us. Instead, we find a unique uh, group of people who share our unique brand of disappointment with God and with the church and a community that we build on top of our disillusionment rather than on our faith, a community that's built on the foundation of a common disbelief rather than a common belief is the spiritual equivalent to ibuprofen. 
It might dull your symptoms for a moment, but it cannot heal any real sickness. A community that can empathize with you without challenging you is a community that can comfort you and can never heal you. And so most often, pseudo-communities built in reaction to pain are groups of people stuck wallowing together in that very pain. One where we describe our symptoms to one another, all the ways that, and the things that have turned our stomachs, but we are never nourished by the bread that we can become. So where you go with your questions, it matters. If we are to know the person that the sign points to, we have to be willing to process the bits that taste like raw wheat on my tongue. We have to be willing to stay when walking away would be so much easier. See, Jesus, he was not afraid to offend. But offense was never the point. Promise, that's what he was always speaking. And promise is the reward of those who stay, those who trust, and those who process. And that brings us to our final scene. Scene four, the dinner. Those who stayed, for them, the words that Jesus said, the raw wheat, it was brought to life. It became bread. In the wilderness, God, through Moses, fed Israel. And then what did God give the Israelites to remember the Exodus story? Uh, how did the person, how did they remember the, these signs, the, the ten plagues and the burning bush and the Red Sea, that pointed to a person, Yahweh, through a meal, Passover? And then in the wilderness, God in Jesus fed Israel and the nations. And what did Jesus give us to remember his life by? How are we supposed to remember all these signs and the person that they pointed to through a meal, a Passover meal? The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's where our story started. That's the key that I told you to hold on to that unlocks the meaning of the whole thing. It's the context that Jesus gives for the sign, the bread, that's going to point to a person, the bread of life. And that phrase gets repeated again near the end of the story. On the final night of Jesus' life, we read this. It was just before the Passover festival. It's the same key. On the other side of the life of God. And on the final night of Jesus' life, the same context was given for the same sign pointing to the same person. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he took what? Bread. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. And then he took a cup, and he poured wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus gives us a meal that completes the story, that connects the dots to what he said so long ago in the wilderness. I am the bread of life. And it was on this very night that those who stayed, those who trusted, those who processed, they will witness the promise that Jesus was making all the way back then. You see, for wheat to be made into bread, it's got to go through a process, through a violent process. When it is harvested and it is cut all the way through and it is cut at the root, and then comes threshing when those wheat stalks are taken and they are beaten against a hard surface until the grain and the shell is separated from the stalk. And next comes winnowing when the chaff is stripped away from the wheat and then finally it gets ground down into flour. 
when the substance you're left with is unrecognizable as wheat at first, but it's all the same stuff still there that's just been reformed. And then that dough is baked. It is baked under a violent level of heat until it what? Rises. It's then, after it's risen, that the raw wheat has been processed into the sort of bread that can give life. Do you see it now? Do you see the story that he's telling? Do you see the meal that is serving? Do you see him, the bread who is life? Jesus repeated at the Last Supper what he said at the feeding of the 5,000, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then his disciples watched as he was taken from that table to be cut, beaten, ground down until he was unrecognizable as a man, put through such violence until what? He rises. And those who stayed through that offense, they saw the unimaginable gift in the promise that this Jesus, he is the I am. He is the Yahweh of the burning bush, clothed in human flesh. He is the bread of life. The offense became a promise, a promise that we remember the broken body and shed blood that won the greatest victory and took away death's sting. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Said another way, this, this table, it's where I've always been going. It's what I've always been talking about. It's what I've always been promising. So every time you gather around it from this day forward, make sure that when you taste the bread, you remember me. And it's a promise that we anticipate because when Jesus returns and sets a heavenly feast of bread before the nations, it's gonna satisfy for all eternity. What's heaven gonna be like? What does eternity with God really feel like and taste like? Well, the picture Jesus offers, it's not a church service that never ends. It's a feast that never ends. It's a banquet table with a place setting with your name on it where the food never runs out and the wine keeps flowing and you never get too full for another taste. It is the bread of life. In a recent sociological study that was conducted to determine the three phrases that bring the most joy to the human person, these were the top three in order. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. <laughs> Those are the three. And do you know why I love that? It's a perfect summary of the ministry of Jesus. I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying this, this table, it's where I've always been going. And it's what I'm anticipating even now. I can't wait to sit at that table with you. Philip Yancey writes of that table, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the table, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anybody wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers alive. So who is God? And how can I know him? Not just in the sanitized place of spiritual reflection, but how can I know him here 
in the thick and the mess of my everyday life with the worry that I'm carrying and the questions that I don't understand and the things that I'm processing, how can I know him here? You start by knowing his name. I am the bread of life.